Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Welcome to a bonus episode with our season sponsor, Act Blue. Act Blue is the left's leading online fundraising platform, trusted by millions of small dollar donors looking to give and make an impact. And I'm so excited to let you all in on a great conversation led by three absolute trailblazers. Today, I'm joined by Denny Sigwalt, Executive Director of PowerShift Network, Christine Nobis, founder of the Great Plains Action Society, and ActBlue's very own Erica Nash. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, BGG fam. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the podcast, which is being sponsored by our good friends at ActBlue. They have been with us since season one, and y'all know how I feel about ActBlue. They are the best. I'm actually traveling right now when we're recording this, and I was at a political conference with lots of candidates, and I made lots of donations, and those donations were through ActBlue. So they continue to do the great work of getting more women, especially women of color, their campaigns going strong with contributions, and they also do a lot of work with organizations. And that is what we are going to highlight today. I am joined by three fabulous women who I am excited for all of you to get to know, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. And then we will get into a BGG conversation, which of course will be about highlighting the pure fabulosity that they are, their journey, and how we can support their efforts. So let's go ahead and start with Danny. Please introduce yourself, your organization, and the work that you do. Thanks so much, Ashanti. My name is Danny Sigwalt, and I am executive director of an organization called PowerShift Network. We are an organization that supports a network of, I think it's 126 member organizations who are all committed to throwing down to grow the impact and power of young folks working for climate justice. And at PSN, we consider climate justice to be any kind of work that's fighting for the liberation of all people and the resilience of our communities. The climate crisis is big and scary, and folks have been working to find solutions for a very long time. We have not yet found any solutions. So we really invest uh, money, resources, trainings, all of, all of the things that movement folks have to offer into infusing energy and seeding the landscape for young folks to be able to take powerful action, whatever that action might look like that they are coming up with leaning into the wisdom of young folks to experiment and figure out some solutions, whether it looks like starting a community garden or pushing for federal legislation, um, like Sunrise has been doing. Sunrise is a project that came out of one of PSN's iconic convergences in 2016. We have convergences every two years of thousands of young folks to offer trainings, resources, networking, and more to young folks to build off of that energy and take action for climate justice. Love it. Erica, let's go to you. Hi, my name is Erica Nash and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am communications director for Act Blue. 
And I am really happy to be here to join you to talk about how our work helps work of groups and organizations to build power. And last but certainly not least, Christine. Hello, uh, my name is also Sakawis, Sakawis Nobis, and I'm a Plains Cree Salto of the George Gordon First Nation that's in Saskatchewan, Canada. And I've been living in Iowa, Iowa City in particular, for the past 15 years. I came here to get my uh, master's degree and I founded Great Plains Action Society about, geez, a while ago. I was trying to do this at least 10 years ago. But with um, the Standing Rock uh, movement, I was able to get a lot of buy-in from uh, both Indigenous folks and and other folks across the state. And uh, now we have a full-flung organization focusing on climate uh, and environment issues. And of course, as Indigenous peoples, you cannot separate social justice issues as they're one and the same for us. And um, everything we do eventually comes down to legislation. So that's what we work on. We work on that. Uh, and so many different issues pertaining to climate and the environment uh, and the missing and murdered Indigenous relatives crisis, which uh, ties into that. You're doing amazing work. And I want to continue on with something that you said that I think is so important with how you really can't separate social justice from all of this work, especially from politics. And we know as women, it's hard to do this work. As women of color, it's even harder to do this work. What are some of the things that you have had to overcome on your journey? You said it's like, now we're a full-blown organization. And I know what that's like. Even when I started at the BGG, I was like, this is just a blog that a few people read, you know, a couple of times a month. I didn't expect for it to become a podcast for us to be able to lift up these voices, especially voices that are leading on social justice. So what are some of the things that you have learned along the way that have helped you grow into your leadership? I've learned that being an executive director is hard. (laughs) As a fellow executive director, I (laughs) co-sign. I also (laughs) co-sign. Yeah. You know what? Let's let's actually talk about that for a second. (laughs) Being in executive leadership is hard. I'm entering my third year at Emerge, you know, focusing on recruiting and training democratic women. And it is not for the weak, especially leading during this time. So, Christine, let's keep with that. Like being executive director is hard. It's it's just a lot more than what we imagine when we do this work as like frontlines folks, uh, you know, that are on the ground and we have a passion for it. And then we realize, well, if we really want to take it like to the next level, well, maybe we do need that. The 501c4, 501c3 tax exemption, because, well, obviously that helps a lot. And then we need to get ourselves legally compliant. The legal compliance aspect of starting an organization is so much more than people expect. And there's a lot of pitfalls mm-hmm. along the way that like we don't expect. I just recently found out that, and this is actually great for AgBlue. I actually have this question for AgBlue. That's funny. I just found out that we need to register in all states that we receive funding from. That's something I didn't know about till just recently, and we're looking into right now. Just getting compliant is is a lot of work. It's very nerve-wracking because as the ED, you're responsible for that. 
also, you know, there's working with staff, trying to make sure that everybody's like happy and comfortable so that they're productive. And then working from home. We don't have an office, so you can't necessarily manage, you know, like in person, you have to trust. And, you know, that's a really big factor right now um, with COVID. And then you're right. You know, you have to bite your lip. You have to always be thinking about the bigger picture because it's not just like yourself that you have to think about. You have to think about people's well-being. Uh, How are they going to pay the rent if you don't raise that money? You can't give in. You cannot give in. You cannot give up. There is too much writing on that. There was an article that came out recently about how only 19% of funding for environmental organizations is going to organizations led by women, mm-hmm. let alone women of color. Like, think mm-hmm. about how small, how small that piece of the pie is alongside this, like, mad rush for organizations to take on leadership mm-hmm. of Black folks and other folks of color. It's just, it's a system that's built for us I feel that really hard. <laughs> and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah. Um, alongside burnout. Mm-hmm. And just, like, I did not found... PowerShift Network, I came in a couple of years after it had been started after two different executive directors, and they both left because they were burnt out. Neither of them were mothers, and there wasn't a pandemic. And so like here I am years into this pandemic and parenting and all of it, just trying to figure out why, like why I'm still here and what it is. And part of it is stubbornness. And also part of it is feeling like if I fail, it's even worse, like because it's a reflection of black women leaders and like a level of responsibility there. When I also already know that this the cards are stacked against us, it's it's not easy. No, that fear of failure is just so real, you know, Mm -hmm. especially and like you said it, Danny, we are now in a world where people want to see more black and brown women in these leadership roles was like, yay, we're here. But then there really isn't a conversation about the support and what does it mean to make sure that they are successful. And because, you know, we're just now entering a point where there are more of us and we can lean on each other and have that type of support system, There's still so much that needs to be done. And I think this is a great way to bring Erica into the conversation because all of our organizations use AgBlue. And AgBlue does have this commitment, though, to on the fundraising end, you know, making it easier for us to get those donations to be able to share the message. So tell us a little bit about why AgBlue really has this commitment in this day and age, you know, when you all are like walking the walk, you're talking the talk. And why is that so important to you all as an organization and your values? Sure. That's a great question. But I'm going to circle back just a little bit to what Danny and Sakousis were saying about support and needing support. So when it comes to leadership, it's so important to have that front row to help and to support and to keep you lifted. And if you want to scope that out a little bit, it's important to have a community around you to be able to grow. You need people to be able to go out, not just fundraise, but to be engaged to the ones that will write the letters and show up at the events and that sort of thing. And that's what's so great about Act Blue, because Act Blue took the 
probably the least democratic aspect of <laughs> of campaigns, <laughs> which is raising money because no one likes to raise money or few people like to raise money. But they took that and revolutionized it and democratized it. So it's really, really important because let's be honest, fundraising is a thing and it is very important. Resources, that's a very important thing. And so this makes it easier, more accessible, but it also engages people. So it's not just, you know, that $5 investment, that's your seed corn, so to speak. So it's not just that $5 or that $10. But it's someone who is going to be engaged, someone who's going to support the work that you're doing and people who are going to get out there and go to the events or go to the organizing rallies. They're going to write the letters. They're going to speak up and speak out. They're going to tell their circle and their friends and their community. And that just is absolutely worth that small dollar investment. It is. And I love how you talked about the grassroots aspect of it, you know, writing that small dollar donation, the letter writing, canvassing. And we just really got into the jugular with this one. So with this conversation, let's take it back to a little lighter note. And we'll stay with you, Erica. What drew you to activism and this work? I have to say it's um, Act Blue really is the sweet spot between politics and nonprofits and organizations. And I love the work that we're doing to really, really support groups and organizations and and what they're doing. So it's not just candidates, but it really did resonate with me so much. And I'm just so honored to be a part of this team. More than that, I think I'm mostly honored because I know that this work is helping to amplify Danny's work and Christine's work. So that makes me really, really excited. And honestly, to be a woman in this space and being a Black woman in this space, when it comes to, I mentioned that I was communications director, but when it comes to that work, communications directors on the Hill, and and I have some of that Capitol Hill experience. And there's just not a lot of black and brown Mm -hmm. women there. It's not Mm -hmm. a lot of black and brown women in a lot of media or media related spaces. And so it's absolutely a pleasure to be able to bring my skills and my passions here and to particularly uh, uplift the work that these outstanding women are doing to make the change that they want to see. Love it. And Danny, we also know there's not a lot of black and brown women really working in the climate movement. We just need to improve across the board (laughs) with our representation. But, you know, what was it that drew you to saying, okay, this is where I'm going to center my efforts? I do want to point out, though, that there are more and more black and brown women entering the climate change (laughs) arena every day. And I'm super excited to be able to say that half of PSN staff is Black and a quarter of our staff is Indigenous. All right. Snaps Um, for that one. (laughs) It's something that we've really intentionally been talking about and working on, um, specifically given the history of the United States, like any kind of conversations that we're having about reconciling 
our relationship with the earth or with labor and capitalism means that we have to send our black and indigenous folks in these conversations. There was a moment when I was just trying to figure out what my career path was going to be um, and was looking to movement areas that had resources and funding. And at that time, it was climate change, but that was a sexy moment <laughs> for climate change. And just like with any other movement, money goes in and out, but I'm, I'm situated firmly in this work until we have figured out solutions to the climate crisis, because I understand that it's connected to everything. It's really important that we acknowledge all of the racial justice and intersecting social justice issues at play. And that if we don't, as the homie Angela Davis said, all of our social justice issues are a moot point, essentially, if we don't have a planet to live on. Mm -hmm. And Christine, want to hear from you. And when you were describing your work, all the great work that you're doing, one of the things that I love that you're working on is the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And it's a conversation we've had on the podcast, you know, multiple times, how important it is. And I was just very excited when Deb Holland became our cabinet secretary, first Indigenous cabinet secretary over at Interior. She created this bureau. And for me, it was just another example of why the representation matters and why you need key women in these roles to be able to do that. So what was it that really led you to want to focus on building up this great organization? Here in Iowa, uh, I felt very inclined to do something because there is no representation from Black and Brown folks, really, which if you can believe that, which it's hard to believe, but um, it's true. As of now, I mean, I think we're the only Indigenous-led org doing uh, this work uh, in Iowa. And uh, we're always looking for partnerships with other folks. And right now, that's been hard to find in the BIPOC community in Iowa. In terms of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives movement, you know, we're just glad to be a part of the, the few people that are doing stuff. And it is very much connected to uh, climate um, justice. The whole process of colonization is to take land and resources in the process, mitigate the local population, you know, either through like annihilation or assimilation or enslavement, you know, and that's exactly what's been going on, like within the indigenous uh, world here on Turtle Island for, you know, over 500 years. And so I also presented uh, an intervention at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues on uh, man camps, otherwise known as uh, temporary workforce housing setups, uh, where you can really see at that particular junction how uh, exactly this is happening with transient workers coming into Indigenous spaces. We do have actual statistics now that prove that there is great increase in violence in our, in our communities with these uh, man camps when they come in, like building pipelines or other types of construction projects or mining, whatever kind of extractive um, process that obviously really correlates to uh, the climate crisis and and then uh, to uh, violence to uh, indigenous peoples. And that's that's why uh, I felt it really, I felt very passionate about doing something particularly in Iowa. And we've talked about how the world has changed so much over the past two years since the pandemic hit. We're even seeing how it has just changed with Russia invading Ukraine. And I want to dive into just asking everyone, how has 
this reshaped you as a leader. There's really great resolve and positivity. And I'm just very honest, you know, I don't even recognize the person that I was when I took over Emerge. I am very much a different person now. So what are some of the things that you like about how you have changed and grown? Danny, let's start with you on this one. I think that one of the things that I'm thinking about is I am more patient. Mm. I'm more patient with people, understanding just the scope and breadth of human needs. I think I'm a lot more generous and more willing to give folks grace, more committed to creating balance. I think I'm a lot more adept at articulating connections between the current political moment, whatever it might look like, and the world that we're dreaming. Talking about COVID as an illustration of broken systems and connecting that fight and thinking about the resources and wisdom that we're learning as we're building mutual aid infrastructure and all of these things in our communities to figure out what it's going to look like in the face of climate catastrophe weather disasters, so-called natural weather disasters, and figuring out how we're connecting these issues to making sure that we're always a step ahead of where we were. Erica, how about you? That is a really good question. For me, mostly with this pandemic, it really focused my mind on what's most important. Is my family Mm. safe? Are my friends who are like family, are they safe? Are they healthy? Am I making time for them? And so it's very easy. I'm based outside of DC and it's very easy to be engaged in the culture of overwork. And oh my goodness gracious, mm-hmm. I worked so many hours and, and wearing that as a badge of honor. So to me, I think one of the, I hesitate to say good things, but one of the things in the pandemic is a focus on what's important. And also there's a sense that I've said this phrase and a lot of people have, and this is sort of scoping out professionally, but that we are building the plane as we fly it. And -hmm. (laughs) and particularly for me, and maybe this is a little personal for me as well, but just knowing that you can still do your best work if you don't have all the answers. And to know that you know enough, that you're smart enough, that you know more than you think, and you can apply answers and be effective, even if things are uncertain. And I think with COVID, it is very (laughs) uncertain. For two years, we're almost as if we're sort of operating in the dark. And so being able to take what you know and apply it even if it feels unfamiliar. I think that's really, really important. And I'm glad that at Blue, that I have the space to apply what I've known in ways that it's sort of like, well, maybe maybe we hadn't dealt with this issue in this way before. And so how to tackle that problem or that challenge or that opportunity. So that's what I think when I think about some of the lessons learned and the resilience built. And I know sometimes resilience can be a Sometimes we can roll our eyes a little bit because sometimes, sometimes you don't always want to be resilient. (laughs) No, I don't always want to be. But 
Yeah. It's a great skill to have and great muscle to exercise and keep strong. Saying resolve and resilient and strong is exhausting a lot of times being those things. And sometimes you just you just want to be, you just want to be, and you just want to do a good job. So Christine, how about you? Danny took the words out of my mouth, patience, because that's something I've definitely learned that I'm proud to say that has really developed within myself uh, as an executive director. It's just not something, I've never really been a patient person. And so I've really changed a lot. Uh, I just take my time and let things happen sometimes and then see how it ends up without necessarily intervening or saying anything, trusting, you know, the folks I'm working with and just seeing like what happens instead of, you know, meddling around can sometimes be the best thing you can do. And I want to open up the next question to everyone before we get to our final question. Is there just a key great piece of leadership advice that someone has given to you that you would like to share with the BGG audience? I'm thinking about a bunch of elders right now in my life, two of them in particular, because they just passed away. Frank Lemire passed away, geez, almost three years ago now. And um, a really close elder of mine, Art McConville, just passed away a couple weeks ago. And so I can't really think of like something they said per se, but more like just their ability to talk with anybody. That to me always impressed me. They had friends all over in every demographic. And that's how I feel sometimes. I feel like them. And to see them do that and feel like, hey, I feel like I kind of do that too. And to see them be successful, it kind of motivates me and gives me strength when I feel down and when I feel overwhelmed. I just think about them and their easygoing natures and ability to have conversations with anybody. And then sometimes that takes away some of the anger being an Indigenous person and makes it easier for me to talk across the table to people that I wouldn't normally want to talk to or might even be disgusted by. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But these conversations are necessary. It's unfortunate, but they are. Erica, anything that come to mind that you want to share? For me, one of the most important pieces is to trust yourself, to trust your voice. People are already listening to you if you're a leader, people are already respecting your work. So to trust yourself. And I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier about having a front row and a support to do the hard work that you do. Now, I'm not going to say me, I'm going to say Danny and Christine. And so I Obviously, I'm plugging Act Blue a little bit, but I think it really connects. For us, being able to provide a platform for fundraising tools so these organizations can do what they do, when you're fundraising and you have that, it frees up time to do other things. So for candidates, it frees up time for them to connect with people and for nonprofit and other groups that we are really excited to amplify, it frees up time to engage with people who support that work. So knowing that they can do that, it, it does go back to trusting your voice because there are people out there 
that really believe in it and need to hear about it. And when you can have some of the some of the other things that can be addressed and how Act Blue can help that when you have that sort of squared away and, and something that's done and easy, that means you can focus on other things and focus on really expanding your voice. And that's what I'm excited to see both with Christine and with Danny. So, and with all of the groups that we work with in Amplify. I think for me, what I've been thinking a lot about is how I'm working myself out of a job, right? And specifically, that means what does it look like for me to build an organization with strong leaders who don't need me so that I can step away? I just announced a couple of weeks ago that I'm planning on transitioning out of my role by the end of this calendar year because I work at a youth organization. And I've been saying for a very long time that I refuse to be 36 working at a youth organization. <laughs> So we're like on the clock ticker now. We're like 11 months from that. Um, And so really thinking about what it means to create opportunities, how we're mentoring folks and building, building ourselves out to be a leaderful movement so that we can walk away is really important. I think it's also really important for our mental health specifically as women of color in this space to know Mm -hmm. that it doesn't all depend on us. If something happens to us or if we just are done, that our legacies aren't going to disappear. Yeah, I feel like we can have an entirely different conversation on the mental health aspect of all of this. So I want to dive into our final question. This season is all about trailblazers. The three of you are phenomenal trailblazers. Share with everyone one of the key lessons you have learned on your career journey. And Erica, let's start with you. One sentence, find a mentor and be a mentor. That Mm. is so important. And just expound on that just a little bit. When you're talking with young people, particularly, there's a whole universe of things that they can do that it may not have occurred to them that they could. And a conversation can change the trajectory and let them know that, you know, there's so much that you can do and you're just getting started and the world needs to hear your voice. So if you can be a mentor, but also find a mentor and just because you may be X years old, you still need that voice. And again, I, I, and I know I have repeated this a lot. So going back to your front row going back to your community, the people who are going to cheer you and inspire you and sometimes push you and push back. That is so important. Christine, one of your key lessons learned. I think it's that my culture and traditions need to guide how we work and sometimes need to come first before something else that might seem important within the organization. I think they've allowed myself and others uh, to to do this work in a less colonized way. It's really hard to be a nonprofit and also try to decolonize at the same time. That's why we called ourselves a Great Plains Action Society, society being based upon the types of groups that we had back in the day that worked together to solve specific problems or worked on specific tasks within the, the band. And 
one thing that comes to mind too is also moving away from youth culture. The U.S. and Canada and the Western world, or maybe the whole world, who knows? But they are obsessed with youth, and I feel like that really takes away from what our elders have to say. And I really feel like these are all generations that need to be working together. Um, we need to be mentoring youth, and then we need to be mentored by our elders. There's a saying that an elder told me once, which um, I kind of live by lately, that says, pay attention to the youth and to the elders because everybody in between is just confused. I really think that um, we need to celebrate all stages of life. And um, I think that with that in mind, we will do much better within this crisis, all the crises we are facing right now. Danny, close us out with your key lesson learned. This is going to sound really conceited, but it's that I'm smart. No, say but it, say it's it. It's that I, I need to like own that, right? Mm-hmm. And that I have had experiences by virtue of identity, by virtue of spaces that I've been a part of, by virtue of opportunities that I've been able to hustle my way into, but that I have something valuable to offer and that my time has value and that I deserve respect, that I don't need to just like give give of myself to everyone because they want it, but that I get to be discerning and that I'm worthy of that. Thank you all so much, Danny, Erica, Christine. We appreciate your time, you sharing all of your wisdom at your age. And thank you for all that you do just every day to make our country and the world better. Thank you. Thank you, Shanti. That's all for today. Thanks to Act Blue for sponsoring this episode. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network, and you can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Next week, we'll be talking to New York City Council member Shahana Hanif, the first Muslim woman elected to the New York City Council and the first woman council member from her district. Until next time, Brown Girls. <laughs>